The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, there's more room in the hall if anybody wants to move in onto the floor or chairs. Please feel free to get up and come on in. And the people on the floor, if you want, you could scoot forward a little bit just to make room. And no worries if not. I think I might need to be a little bit louder because my voice gets a little... Maybe that's too much. Okay. Mm, No, too much. Let's see. A little less. (laughs) Well, imperfection. Okay, that's... But how is the volume for everybody? Okay, great. Yeah, so, welcome. Is anybody here for their first time? Ah, nice. Welcome, welcome. Yay. Yeah, you know, IMC welcomes everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. I, um, was anybody, how many of you listened to Gil's talk last week? Yeah, I, I I have been. I mean, it's kind of nice tradition he has of starting the year with a four noble truths, and um, I've been teaching on them, and other people have, and I really liked what he offered, and I'm going to kind of fold in some of what he shared to what I'm going to offer, and I'm going to, but I'm going to start like, who, who here doesn't know about the four noble truths? Is anybody here who's not doesn't know what the four noble truths are? Yeah? Okay, great, great. So um, then I'll put a little context around before I get started. Um, And uh, let me say kind of the one thing I want to do is kind of differentiate um, what I'll call for the moment noble dukkha from heedless dukkha. Noble dukkha. From heedless dukkha, and I also want to talk about you know dukkha and well-being because they really come together or can. So the four noble truths were are said to be the first teaching of the Buddha, and it's said um, I have a I'll come to it later, but there's a, a sutta quote where Sariputta, who's one of the um, main teachers uh, students of the Buddha and a teacher, a teacher of the Dharma, compared the Four Noble Truths um, to an elephant's um, footprint. And he says, just like any animal in the whole kingdom's footprint can fit inside of the elephant's footprint, so too can all of the teachings of the Buddha fit inside the Four Noble Truths. So it's a very uh, significant teaching. And essentially, um, the way it's traditionally taught is there is suffering, which I'll talk about what that is, how to interpret that. There's the cause of the suffering. There's the end of suffering. And then there's the way to end all suffering. And um, so I like to pair the first and second truth and the third and fourth. So maybe call them two noble truths. 
And the first two are really about um, the direction of um, unwholesomeness and, un, you know, sort of not doing well. And the, so the dukkha, and which can be translated as, Gil likes to translate it as pain, and I'm going to incorporate that into my talk today. But it can be thought of as super subtle disease. I think the volume needs to go down just a teeny bit more. Um, irritation to total distress. So this huge range. Volume still okay? Okay. A little louder again? Wasn't quite? Yeah, it needs to go up a little bit. It's a really hard balance, sorry. Yeah, okay. So um, just this huge variation. So let's just say that, you know, just like pain can be maybe super mild, just this little rough patch on your skin, you feel it is a little bit sensitive to the cold or something, um, to, you know, your leg is broken, to worse. Um, so dukkha and the cause of dukkha. And uh, the word in Pali for dukkha, I mean for um, the cause is tanha, which is classically translated as craving. And today what I want to talk about it as um, is resistance and compulsion. Resistance and compulsion. So this resistance and compulsion cause pain. That's pretty relatable, right? Is that relatable for you guys to understand that? Sort of like when we resist things, it can even slightly, just think about that, just the subtlest resistance. Oh, I don't want that. Just the subtlest pain. And the compulsion has, just when we feel compelled, there's a a discomfort to that, to extreme discomfort. So these two... um, kind of can move us, if we are heedless and unmindful, toward more and more difficulty. The second truth, or the third and the fourth truths, are the end of suffering, and it's what leads us to the end of suffering. And that is the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the teachings of the Buddha um, that guide us in how to engage with our life and our practice. So noble dukkha and heedless dukkha, unheeded dukkha, and well-being. And so maybe I'll take a minute to talk a little bit about well-being and maybe two kinds of well-being. I'll say that um, there can be hedonic well-being. And hedonic is a term that is used to describe sort of like the, the treadmill of life where we're always trying to get and do and feel better, sort of like me trying to get the sound just right. <laughs> you know, there's this like trying to adjust and, you know, kind of always moving towards sort of trying to get things right and um, do things like, you know, go to the spa and do all this extra, extra stuff to make ourselves feel good and, um, and so, you know, it can be really helpful, actually. And but when it's heedless, it it just leads back to dukkha. 
Um, and then there's udonic well-being. Udonic is kind of a well-being that's the result of what the Buddha really talked about in terms of happiness is things like um, the bliss of blamelessness. It comes from showing up for others and ourselves in a way that um, we feel is blameless. It's not dropping our garbage on the ground and instead putting it in a trash can and you know, being able to walk by other garbage and go like, yes, I didn't do that. You know, in a simple way. It's, uh, you know, ethical action. It's wise action. The result of those things. I'll talk a little more about that too. But I kind of want to give you these this idea. Because when I start to talk about dukkha, if all you have in your mind is something that's very very unpleasant and not helpful and something you don't want, you might not hear my words the same way I'm hoping that you will. So there is noble dukkha, dukkha that leads toward well-being, actually. So um, I have learned to listen to dukkha, and I have learned that I often feel very happy when I recognize dukkha. That when I see dukkha, I know that there's, I'm seeing it, so there's an opportunity to suffer less. When I don't listen to my dukkha, I'm not heeding my dukkha, it can become heedless dukkha. And that can be where we're trying to do things to make ourselves feel better, but we just keep making it worse and worse. Or that we're ignoring the suffering and it just grows and grows because we're ignoring the problem. Like the pain, we're ignoring the pain and, and the cause of the pain gets worse and worse because we're not listening. So dukkha, if we're listening to dukkha, it can inspire us to move toward hedonic pleasure. It can inspire us to move toward getting a piece of cake or shopping or something like that that is using sense pleasures to try and make us feel better. And that's not really the kind of um, well-being or the usefulness of the the. That of dukkha that would be maybe considered noble. There can be noticing dukkha and turning inward instead of outward. And meeting that dukkha with uh, intimacy and curiosity, with like this deep faith and understanding that it's there with a message it's there inviting us to notice how we're causing pain how we're engaging with our life in a way that's causing pain I think that one of the things that's a little bit hard to think about when I'm trying to differentiate these two kinds of well-being 
is that um, it's much easier for the mind to focus on something than nothing. So if you look around this room right now, try and find empty space, a space where there's not inhabited. And I'm going to have you pause and try and keep your mind on that space for several seconds. So just see what happens if you try and just like look at emptiness, nothingness. What happens in your mind? Did anyone notice that it's hard to keep your attention focused in that space? For me, I could feel that there's like a tug, you know. I just, I want to look around. I want to find something more solid to look at. And um, so I think that it's easier and more compelling for us to try and look for something to help us feel better than it is to practice letting go and renouncing or, you know, turning inward it makes sense? Okay. So, pain. So if we think about um, pain is caused, physical pain is caused by injury, right? Some kind of injury. And so maybe we think about, you know, resistance and um, compulsion as causing injury. And as I was thinking about this, my mind thought about the term moral injury. Has anybody heard that term? It came up a lot in the pandemic because of doctors and healthcare professionals working in hospitals with people dying of COVID who were refusing vaccinations and denying that they had COVID. And, um, and, and it can happen in sim- similar ways where, you know, you're... Well, the, here's a definition. Moral injury is the damage done to one's conscience or moral compass when that person perpetrates witnesses, so this was an example of witnessing, or fails to prevent acts that transgress one's own moral beliefs, values, or ethical codes of conduct. And this is actually, to me, a kind of a definition of what the Buddha was teaching. <laughs> and I connect this with dukkha, that we experience that kind of pain when we you know, when there's damage done to our conscious, when our awareness, what's our clarity, what our moral values are. So, here's a thought, a question. What would happen if we didn't have dukkha? What would life be like if dukkha didn't exist? When I was asking myself that question, 
it occurred to me there are people who don't feel pain. There is a syndrome, a medical syndrome called congenital insensitivity to pain, or CIP. So I looked it up a little bit. And uh, the article starts by saying, pain is the body's way of telling us to be careful. But there are some who get their entire life without feeling it. Wow, right? Wow. And it goes on to say people with CIP would love to know what pain means and what it feels like to be in pain. And, and then it says, people with CAP say, people assume that feeling no pain is this incredible thing and that it almost makes you superhuman. But with, for people with CIP, it's exact opposite. Exact opposite. We would love to know what pain means and what it feels like to be in pain. Without it, your life is full of challenges. So we think that Often, when people are talking, we think that our life is, you know, when we have dukkha, that's the problem. But maybe it'd be a lot worse if we didn't have dukkha. I feel pretty sure it would be. So, to me, I I really do want to inspire you to have a different relationship with dukkha. By saying this kind of thing, to kind of imagine, can you appreciate, can you come to appreciate Dukkha as a guide, as a messenger, as something noble. Thinking about dukkha like um, a feed, you know, feedback mechanism. So some of you may have heard this example before, but. It kind of, I like to use it, for me it works really well, but I think about, um, dukkha, a little bit like um, rumble strips. You know what rumble strips are? On the side of the highway, they're, they're little divots in the cement, and if you drive on them, what happens? Really noisy and it's a lot of vibration. And when you hit those, what happens in your body? Yeah, it tenses up, reacts. And then what might happen in your mind? Fear. Anybody get angry? Annoyed? Yeah. Yeah. Upset. So we can drive on the rumble strips, we get startled. It can bring up fear, and then we can have mental reaction, right? And then we might um, harp on ourselves for being so careless. I see some nodding heads. Or, and, and then we might be thinking to ourselves a little bit later that we should probably call Caltrain and report a complaint about these rumble strips. Because, you know, there, it's really, there could be a better way. There could be a better way. Maybe it could be soft, jingly bells or you know, <laughs> you know, something that is nice and, you know, beautiful. And 
helps us stay on the road instead of this terrible, awful feeling of these rumble strips. So we can be planning what we're going to say and craft this letter and contact the governor and do all this stuff, right? And then, or at some point, we can finally kind of recognize that we hit the rumble strips because we were driving off the road, because we weren't paying attention, because we lost our mindfulness. And then we can kind of go, oh, and what would have happened if I had kept driving? And then there might be the sense of relief and appreciation and even gratitude for the rumble strips. And maybe this is what happens with dukkha. Maybe this is how we start to, you know, we react to the dukkha, but we can help ourselves. We can walk through this and come back to this place of being, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that my finger hurt so I didn't keep cutting with a knife. I'm so grateful I'm listening to this dukkha so I'm not continuing to cause harm to myself or others. I'm uh, deciding what to share next. So, um, Gil has a quote I'll read. In Buddhist shorthand, Addictions, compulsions, obsessions, and attachments are referred to as clinging and craving, tanha. When the contraction of clinging is pervasive, it leads to stress, which makes us vulnerable to such human instincts as fear, aggression, and greed. When these qualities are activated, it can be easy to behave in ways that further harm ourselves or others. Buddhism emphasizes that craving is a condition for further craving, and that intentions to harm tend to motivate more of the same. So kind of pairing this harm, this idea of injury and harm, and how when we don't listen to the dukkha, those other energies grow. So... Coming back to me when I, I, I like these words, resistance and compulsion. I feel like they're relatable. I often feel my mind gets kind of lost when I hear the word clinging or craving. So I like this, and I encourage you to find your own liking words, you know, whatever works for you, that helps you feel that direct connect with, oh, I know what this means. And if I'm resisting something, if I recognize resistance, oh, what don't I want? What don't I want? What do I think should be different than the way it is? And then I can kind of get in there and figure out what it is I'm clinging to, which is an idea, a belief often, or a wish, right? And compulsion, you know, this 
feeling of I want, I want, I want, or push, um, push and pull at the same time, maybe even. It's um, really can be quite tantalizing because there's this sense that if I just get myself what I'm wanting, it'll go away. I'll feel better. And this is where we get into the hedonic well-being that I mentioned earlier. Oh, if I just go get this, if I just give myself that, I'll be relieved. But generally, it's, uh, it's you know, we're being bamboozled because, you know, it doesn't last very long. How often do you reach for something because it just sounds good and then you find yourself reaching again and again and again and again for the same thing? Just another hunger and another hunger and another hunger. So just to say a couple of words about working with this, the, the resistance or the compulsion... I got a lovely uh, email from Saidao Utejaniya this morning. He has a daily, daily mindfulness email that goes out that's short, and it was sort of the perfect little quote for today. Um, and uh, so, just to to name number one, that when we're struggling with resistance and compulsion, he says, if desire or aversion are overwhelming. Awareness needs to be built up first before tackling them directly. In this case, it is better to use a neutral object to build continuity of awareness for as long as it takes. So he might mean, you know, breath or walking or knitting could be something that we're paying attention to and feeling as we do. And we do it for as long as we need to for as long as it takes to build up our capacity to be present, stay aware. He said, we don't have to deal with anything in the mind until awareness and wisdom are ready. So it's kind of nice to keep it simple, right? And to take care of ourselves, to get the quality of the mind in the place so that we can relate to the dukkha as noble dukkha and not be heedless with it. As we, as we start to relate to the dukkha as noble, we will grow trust and faith, confidence. We will start to feel um, that joy and well-being that comes up when we recognize the presence of that pain of dukkha. And as we do that, something inside of ourselves, inside of me, grows wiser. I could feel it shifting and growing. And it's like almost like something inside starts to trust, have more trust. Trust even in, in me, whatever me is. And then there's more relaxing and more ease, more earned confidence.
I'll say just, um, there's a poem by Rosemary Traumer, you know, on dealing with what she calls it, oh, the longing, because that compulsion, right, and the resistance. And how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? And um, how do we let it be? She says, Let longing be longing. Though it rises in me with incessant hunger, though it clutches from my heart with outstretched hands, pins me with pleading eyes, let longing be longing. Never has it worked to pretend I don't hear it as it shouts and demands or charms me with its silken promises. In the vision I said no to the longing, and the longing only grew. But when I said yes, longing, I see you. She says some other sweet words. But essentially, the longing just becomes longing. And I am a woman who sometimes longs for what she cannot have. So this is all about kind of getting into that right relationship with dukkha so that it can be noble for us. And um, there's, you know, the Noble Eightfold Path is a path, right? And dukkha lets us know when we're on that path, like the rumble strips lets us know when we're on the road and going off the road. And here's another Gill quote. The ancient Buddhist metaphor of a path draws on the idea of a cleared passageway that allows one to move through an otherwise impassable forest. Just as a person brings their entire body along when walking on a forest path, a spiritual spiritual practitioner enters the Buddhist path by engaging all aspects of who they are. Yet while this physical path exists, whether we walk on it or not in this story, the Buddhist path exists only in our engagement with it. So dukkha only becomes noble when we engage with it. The path only becomes available to us when we engage with it. He says we create the path with the activities of our minds, hearts, and bodies. So there's this great, really, really great book. I really liked it. read it several times this last year. It's called um, The Lion Tracker's Guide to Living by Boyd Barty. And it's, uh, he grew up in South Africa, and his family ended up creating a, a reserve. And they take people on tours to track animals, but they don't kill the animals. It's a long story, but um, of a lot of different things. But essentially, he really talks about becoming a tracker. So I have this idea of becoming noble dukkha trackers. One of the lines that he says that I really like is, I don't know where I'm going, but I definitely know how to get there. I love that. I love that. And last week, Gil gave this talk, right, on the Four Noble Truths, on the three levels of heart, body, heart, mind, and belly. And so I like to call listening to the full range of dukkha as a tracking exercise. 
And so we have to start by becoming aware of when dukkha is present, right? And it requires us wanting to recognize dukkha, wanting to track it, wanting to learn about it. So from the book, I'm going to read you some, some excerpts. And this first excerpt for me is about the level of dukkha on the mind level that Gil was talking about. And so he says, Tracking is very much like learning a foreign language. Single tracks are words. You might see a few as you walk the trail, and they create a jerky first phrase. If you stop speaking and don't practice, the learning recedes. While the more you do it, the more natural and fluid it becomes. So for me, in the beginning, when we're trying to track dukkha, it's, it's a little awkward. It's not a language we're used to, to speaking. We're gonna, our mind's going to shift around between seeing you know, dukkha as a friend and sometimes as a foe. But the more you do it, the more natural and fluid it becomes. And he goes on to say, One afternoon, the short phrases became flowing sentences. I was out alone, he's tracking, as Alex, one of his mates, had some other work to do back at the camp. I came across the tracks of a large rhino bull that had wallowed in a water hole, his body caked with a thick black mud. The track away from the water hole was fairly easy to follow because as the rhino walked through the thick bush, bush, a slick of mud had scraped off on the trees and bushes. His body was dripping with it, a Hansel and Gretel trail that I could easily follow from bush to muddied bush. So often with dukkha, when we first connect with it, it's pretty easy to see. Over time, maybe it gets more subtle, and that's when we start to move to the level of the heart. So he says, After a few miles of tracking this, I knew the mud on his body had begun to dry, and the dripping trail became more and more faint. And then there was no more mud, My eyes seamlessly shifted from the mud to the three-road clover tracks he had left, three-toed, and suddenly the iterations of the track that my brain had stored as search images began to pop. I saw the track with ease. I noticed compressions, scuff marks, smooth bark where his three-ton body had brushed against a tree. I saw the grass laid flat in the imprint of a side toe, the half-moon of a front toe, I was moving on his track, fast and fluent. The easy trail had helped me to get out of my own head so I could relax into myself. So moving into like a more relaxed relationship with dukkha, where our heart can start to resonate with what's going on. We don't feel contracted and pulled back. We develop trust, the faith, right, that the dukkha is noble if we relate to it in the right way. Our heart starts to trust. And then we move into level three, the belly, the level of the belly. So he goes on to describe, it was easy and natural that I had the feeling that I had gained entry into an entirely new dimension. I could anticipate the subtle shifts of this path picking up the faintest of tracks like they were elaborate signs. 
in the same way that after months of being an outsider on a French exchange, the language comes and you suddenly belong to France, to the place, to the culture, to the people. Suddenly I was part of the story of the bush. So it is possible that engaging with the Four Noble Truths can lead you into a whole new dimension, a whole new way of being in this world. You become the Eightfold Path, in the words of the Buddha. You become free. feel moved by the, my own reflections on freedom. You just feel it in my body. I'm at the belly level <laughs> in the moment. I think I'll just try and summarize and end with a poem. And sort of emphasize that really what I'm talking about is our relationship to and with our experience. That we can have a a noble relationship with life and our experience or we can have an ignoble relationship with our life and experience. And I find a huge part of creating a noble relationship with my life and experience has to do with recognizing what I can and cannot control. because so much of having a noble relationship with life means to allow life to to allow what's happening to happen and to see it and show up for it in a non-reactive way but with responsivity and this is a hard thing and in in AA they have the serenity prayer It goes like this, God grant me the ability to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And there's a version of this that I like very much, which is useful when one wants to have compassion for others, which is, God grant me the ability to accept the people I cannot change the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. Yeah. So 
this is a noble relationship to life. And it requires allowing. Allowing life, allowing others. And I hope you know that I've already talked, it's not that we're passively allowing, right? It's not that we're not engaging with mindfulness. It's necessary. We need to be in wise relationship, noble relationship to what's happening. But to do that, we have to first acknowledge and allow what's really going on, not to be in conflict because then we're resisting it or we're compulsively moving to try and change it. So here's a poem by Dana Falds. It's called Allow. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. Practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And the choice to let go of your known way of being, and the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So there's a lot more I could say, but I think that's a good place to end. And thank you. And if anybody has questions because I left you confused or disheartened, please come and talk to me afterwards. (laughs) Thank you. May we all become noble dukkha trackers.